0: Good evening. You up all night tossing, turning, mind racing. Can't get to sleep. Well you're in the right place. Sleep with me is proud to present Game of Drones, the Game of Thrones podcast that puts you to sleep. We do it with an episode strut. We do it with an episode discussion. All you need to do is get in bed, turn out the lights and press play. This isn't gonna be one of those action-packed Game of Thrones podcasts or a quippy one with facts and book analysis and show analysis. No. This is Game of Drones and the way the show puts you to sleep is I start talking about the episode and what interests me. And as I go on it gets a little bit more and more boring with each pat with each passing minute and you fall asleep. So the podcast is gonna create a safe place where you can put aside all your racing thoughts or mind malfunctions, or well, there's probably functioning properly, just over functioning. You'll, you'll be able to put that aside where it'll distract you from that with inane discussions of Game of Thrones stuff. And soon you'll be drifting off into dreamland. If this sounds strange, weird, obscene even, it is. This is simply a podcast. From someone who loves Game of Thrones and who loves telling bedtime stories to help you fall asleep. That's it. Uh, I know it's, it's, uh, yeah, weird. I already said that's weird. But that's what we're here for. If this is your first time here, obviously I'm talking to you and I'm trying to explain it. I'm not doing a great job, so I'm sorry. But I hope we help you get to sleep. If you've been here before, welcome back. Thank you for coming again. So good to see you. You know, I'm not going to yell at you like the hound does, so don't worry. You're in the right place. And uh, that's it. We're on the web at www.sleepwithmepodcast.com slash drones. We have other episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Uh, You can find those on iTunes or at our website, Game game of... uh, at sleepwithmepodcast.com or on iTunes. If you need to get a hold of me, it's feedback at sleepwithmepodcast.com. You can comment on our website or you can get me on Twitter at Dearest Scooter. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear if the show helped you. If you have a chance, especially if you're just listening to the Game of Drones feed, please review and rate us on iTunes. It'll really help other people find the show. And eventually, it'll help them get to sleep if the podcast is working for you. Spread the word so we can help other people that don't know about the podcast. And that's it. I'm glad you're here. And let's get on to the show. Tonight, we're going to be talking about The Mountain and the Viper, Season 4, Episode 8. Now, a lot of you that, if you listen to this podcast, you know that I have much love for Sir Davos. Sir Davos is the Onion Knight. And this episode. When after I rewatched it and took some notes, this was like the uh, the onion episode, um, or maybe I'm using this analogy badly. But the more I let this episode mar- like marinate in my mind or ferment or whatever, much like peeling the old onion back, as uh, the onion, <laughs> onion Knight is known to do. I don't know if he actually is, but uh, the more that came to me, I mean. If an onion, it would be the smell. But uh, this episode was rich. And it it wasn't at first I was like, oh boy, what am I going to talk about here? But man, we got some great, 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 great boring stuff to cover. Now when I do the initial run through, it's going to look like we don't have much to talk about because we're only going to talk about a few things. We're going to talk about John Berger and ways of seeing. We're going to cover a little bit about hand washing. But the big topic we're gonna be to covering tonight is L, O, V, E, love, folks. We're we'll gonna be talking about. Well, initially I thought we'd be talking about heartache and heartbreak, but this vein of onion, that we like, we it's like we're onion miners, with the old onion night. Hopefully, you know, he's treating us fairly, but uh, and we've come across a vein and like a gold vein, but this is an onion vein. Of onions that have been growing deep, deep in the earth. And it is thick. And it is stinky. But not just a bad smell, just a powerfully deep smell of onion and love. So we're going to talk about love in the world of Westeros and in that context. So that's it. I'm going to run through the episode real quick. And then we'll get on to the real boring stuff. Alright, so Mountain and the Viper. Now you know the ending is what gets all the the attention and you know when you got uh, Oberon in the mountain you know spoiler alert you know hopefully you're not listening to this if you haven't seen the episode but when you have them in a battle of course it's going to get all the heat all the uh the uh primary attention and not that it doesn't deserve it cuz whoa boy that was awesome and also you know upsetting at the same time but so there's so much more in this episode, so that's what I want to run through. First off, we, the episode opens with trouble in Molestown. Now, I don't want to pat myself on the back here, but I could have told you, and I did tell you, Sam, buddy, there's going to be trouble in Molestown, and, you know, I, I thought maybe you got book smarts. I don't know if you look books, even if you looked up Molestown in a book, dude, it should have told you that there's going to be trouble in Molestown. So, but yeah, again, I'm not going to gloat, because then we have a greet. Turns out, I think, and this is what we're going to talk about later, is I don't think a greet, because we have this prostitute slash comedian doing a little stand-up, and then doing, picking on the baby. But yeah, I don't think a greet likes humor. Also, I didn't get to look into Bear and the Maiden Fair, that song, so I apologize for that at a time. Burping songs, that's always good. Learned I uh, learned some people's names that I probably sure already know, but Blackjack Kegs and Mully. I think they were all they were all at uh they all ran into trouble at Molestown. Had a little uh uh nudity, which we're gonna cover with John Berger. Hopefully I'm pronouncing his name correctly. A G Gr- Grey Worm doing a little periscope down action, which was pretty I mean, it was a touching scene. Well, it wasn't actual touching, he was touching with his eyes, which is still inappropriate touching people. But uh, it was touching how he just sunk himself under the water. I thought that was, he was like periscope down. Or I guess I was like periscope down. I liked the uh, pillar in the stones by Khaleesi. And that's a good question, you know, that Khaleesi raises. And I guess, again, this is going to have to crowdsource this one. Because, uh... About a glittering sanity got back to me with some crowdsourcing action. So if anybody needs to know about U.S. military and prostitution, I now have some resources. That's an aside, but I did not get to look into, like, do they take just the pillar? And the sense it's a perfectly, that's what we got the Khaleesi there for, to ask the questions that people should be asking. You know, do they, because it's like if you're not going to have babies, you could just take the stones. But then what does that do to you? I don't know. And do they take the pillar or not? Because if they don't take the pillar, well, let's just not not even go there. Again, I liked the gray worm when he says, uh, I remember nothing, only Unsullied. That was a little bit heart-wrenching, a little bit. And Milsandra's from the island of Narth, I think. I might, you know, if I'm going to start stalking her over at uh, Moat Kalin, we learn about the kraken, that they don't have bones. And I don't think they're that bright, this in my words, uh, which kind of feels like a little bit of uh iron, you know, a backhanded, what do they call that, um, underhanded compliment to the uh, iron-born. And then it turns out, uh, you know, that they're not that bright because then uh, they're kind of, I guess they don't have bones, they're kind of spineless, maybe. I don't know if that was a little pre-, pre-, uh set up, I don't know, talk about the drowned god and what is dead may never die, and that is a very sea-worthy metaphor. I mean, again, hopefully if we got a couple marine biologists listening, or listening in the future, but yeah, it seems like the ocean's not a closed ecosystem, I don't think, but ocean's got a lot of recycling going on, or did before we started screwing it up, but, uh, what is dead may never die in the ocean, I don't think. Especially when you got crack, because you got the bottom feeder type things. I don't know. Let's move on. I like how, uh, I guess I wrote it down, I didn't write down it, so I don't know if it was Roos or or Ramsey, but they says traditions are important. <laughs> like traditions of, I mean, it just makes me laugh, it's so disturbing. Get a little, uh, again, uh, uh, those people in the veil are kind of a-holes. So he says, you, You're, you're 4 you you're foreign blood or something, Baelish. So, that man, not only is the hound disliked, Bravosi, but, uh, this guy, I for, uh, I'll probably get to his name, but, it, you know, he's making, he's, he's kind of being a jerk. Or if you're in Sansa's shoes, maybe he's not. Or, I don't know, this, the, these are some pretty, uh, Got some high-born attitude rolling in that scene. And for a guy that had to bring his kid to the wall, which I, I'll get to see, we're going to get back to season one at some point, but I don't know why you were bringing your kid to the wall, but I'll tell you what, it wasn't for uh, handing out bowls of uh, pigeon soup or something to the poor. So, you know, shut the shut up, dude. And then the guy's a boob. You've, man, oof. And the guy he he's all the same guy, I forget his he's the Lord oh Lord Royce. He uh and so he calls uh Baelish Grubby and some other stuff, I can't remember what, but accurate. And then he says uh that the his queen was an odd fish or whatever. She was a cool lord, his lady. She was. I guess he's correct. But uh I don't know. I don't know who was and we get the little bird singing like a little mockingbird. And then I was like, holy crap. Was the whole mockingbird episode, was Sansa the mockingbird? I don't know. Lay that one on me if you guys are, want to discuss something. Feedback at sleepwithmepodcast or add or scooter on Twitter. Or, I mean, anyone wants to enlighten me on the meaning of any of these episodes, I'm begging you to. But is Sansa becoming the mockingbird in this episode? If she, I don't know, so let me know about that. But she's singing. That little bird is singing a little lie, to protect herself. She's a smart, and I guess maybe I shouldn't go on a total Sansa tangent because maybe I did before, but I think finally we're seeing her take it, her character or her, like, moving into an active phase. Now it might be an active, skanky phase, which you know I could be fine with. I don't know, whatever. But uh, she's seeing this, like, stuff has been happening to Sansa for four seasons. And she's had to just kind of endure it or make the best of it or, like, make her Sansa face, which she makes a lot. Which is kind of cute, but also, like, a little bit, like, passing gassy at the same time. But, uh, you know, finally we're seeing Sansa... Taking control of her fate, I think, in a more. I don't know. So it'll be interesting. I'm looking forward to next season for a billion reasons. But that's one of them. It's like, okay. Now, you know, now the shoe is on her other foot in a good way. Or the. And then she gets her little bird outfit. She's got a bird on, her bird swerve, a mocking swerve. Maybe she's. That's what we could call her mocking swerve. Sansa's got her mocking swerve on. I don't know. I'm really just. Pulling this out of my ass right now. Okay. And then, yeah, it's time for Robin to leave the nest. You can't even get enough bird medicine. Can't get enough bird metaphors. My son, who's like, why the fuck? I like when Roos says to Ramsey, Walk with me. Say he's like a powerful CEO. Isn't that what like CEOs say or uh, walk with me? Walk with me. Come on. And then he lays on, you know, this is the north. It's the biggest, man. You like to cut off dicks. I wish I had the biggest, and now I got uh, a land, which, you know, now I don't have to have penis envy because I got all this land, man. Might be frozen solid and, you know, mostly like moats, but it's the biggest. So, you know, let's go, hey, son, why don't we go flay some people? You know, let's keep a tradition good thing going. This is interesting, another thing I'm looking forward to between Baelish and Sansa, is uh, you think you know me, he says to her, and she goes, I know what you want. And he says, you do. And I mean, again, you can't take anything on the surface on this Game of Thrones. So it is like, I'm not sure what Baelish wants. And... Uh, that's what, and or what he's up to, which is kind of so it's kind of like a murder mystery type situation, and I'm not even sure if, what Sansa thinks Baelish wants. And like, did, it's like does Baelish... is Baelish in love with Sansa now as a projection of her mother? Was he in love with her mother? What? Who are these other friends he's got? It. Ooh, it's it's a doozy, and I know that what's going to happen isn't going to be what I expect, and that's why I love it. I love it, I love it, I love it. And a little th- a line that may have been throwaway away or may not, poison is a woman's weapon. Um, I think it was Royce might have said that, but, uh, but putting it out there, putting it out there. And uh, Arya cracking up. We'll come back to that, but that's like a highlight. Of every season. I mean, of all the seasons, her laughing. Whew. It was just magnificent. Magnifique. Magnifique. Oh. I don't know why I put this down. Something about... uh, I put uh, Tyrion would be good at Jeopardy. Which I'm sure he would be. Uh, But then we have this... Probably Emmy-winning scene... Of... uh. Talking about Cousin Olson and the Beetles And we just had some killer lines that I want to reread. Uh, laughing at others people's misery made me feel like a part of something. Cousin Olson the Beetle Smasher Mysteries at the Heart of a Moron I love that. Relentless Beetle Slaughter, that's a great combination of words. He had his reasons, kunk, 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 why? And then, who gives a dusty fuck? Uh, I don't even know, is that a Westerosi term, dusty fuck? I love it. And then this this imagery, standing on about, I think he was a nightmare that Tyrion had, standing on a beach of beetle husks, weeping for their poor little bodies. And then that uh, cousin also was kill, killed by a mule. I don't know. It was, uh, that's gold. And then we have the fight scene, which as much as I love that, we don't really need to cover it here because uh, that's been covered a lot. And that's not an insult or a knock. Uh, just ass. And I'm sure that the Beatles scene's been covered a ton too. But deservedly. And yeah, maybe I'm part of me traumatized because I was hoping that me and Oberyn would develop me Oberyn gray worm, you know, Sir Davos rolls in, picks us up. We go out on the town. You know, I thought we'd be a crew, but I guess not. So that's too bad. But yeah, so that was this episode and uh, let's get, let's get on to the uh, real boring stuff. Okay. Thanks for listening. I hope you fall asleep. All right. So we're going to talk about, uh, ways of seeing and, uh, the reason this comes up is when uh, Grey Worm and Massandra were talking about him seeing her nude in the temple type situation. She says, I'm, At the end, she says, and it was great. I mean, we already covered it, but it's a touching scene. She says, I'm glad you saw me. And then Grey Worm says, So am I. Now, as this has come up before on this podcast, a normal person probably would have a normal reaction to that. Like, oh, that's nice, or, oh, I feel bad for Grey Worm, or, oh, I feel for Malsandra, or, oh, this reminds me of uh, uh, Agamemma, you know, falling in love with uh, Bashida or whatever. But for me, it was like, huh, John Berger, Ways of Seeing, which is a book, uh, which I originally thought was just a book that I read in college as a student, uh, and a Class, very liberal artsy class about advertising and art and culture, which I can't remember the name of it. Wonderful professor whose name I can't remember. First name was Robin. Maybe it'll come to me during a. Uh, uh, which is wow, that's strange. Uh, it was a woman named Robin, but that's strange that this episode, last couple episodes, about the bird me- meta bird metaphors, and then we have Robin the nut job. And then I have a professor named Robin. But um, so this book, Ways of Seeing, I think it it, it had a a great impact on awakening me to ways art and the world work. And then it turns out I did research for this episode. It was originally a BBC miniseries. And I'll just run through the Wikipedia thing about the miniseries. It was a miniseries in the 70s, a four-part television series, 30-minute films. Created by writer John Berger and Mike Dibb, the producer. Berger's scripts were adapted into a book of the same name. The series in the book criticized traditional Western cultural aesthetics by raising questions about hidden ideologies and visual images. The book, the series is partially a response to Kevin Clark's Civilization series, which represents a more traditional view of Western artistic cultural canon. The book uh, Ways of Seeing was written by Berger and Dib, along with Sven Blomberg, Chris Fox, and Richard Hollis. It consists of seven numbered essays, four using words and images, three essays using only images. The book has contributed to feminist readings of popular culture through essays that focus particularly on depictions of women in advertisements and social oil paintings. Ways of Seeing is considered a seminal text for current studies of visual culture and art history. The first part of the television series drew on ideas from Walter Benjamin's The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, arguing that the old master's paintings, modern context is severed from that which existed at the time of his making. Uh, I I guess I won't get into it. I I think the series is probably—I'll have to look at where it's available— And I'll link to it in the show notes. And I don't want to delve too much into the into it, but I thought I I had I saved the book. And this isn't uh, me being funny. I have it. I have it in my hands. Just close your ears. That is Ways of Seeing, the original text I had for the class. And uh, I'm just going to go through. I've not. I mean, I I reread it. I reread it a few years ago. Uh, or looked at it, but I haven't paged through it in a long time. One of the few books I held on to, so you know it has an impact on me. I suggest picking it up or checking out the mini series. Just an eye-opening for someone ignorant like me. But I notice I have some highlights, so maybe I'll just read you some highlighted quotes and see what it reveals. All right, first we're going to go to the first essay from the book, and the opening quote says, Seeing comes before words. The child looks and recognizes before it can speak. Again, we're going to go into this, like, blind. I'm just going to read your quotes, and maybe I won't, I don't know if I'll comment on them or not. Let's see. Or highlights. This time I used a uh, turquoise highlighter here. I didn't even know I owned a turquoise highlighter. If we can see the present clearly enough, we shall ask the right questions of the past. Today, we and this was written in the 70s, so it's even, I don't know if it's exactly same, true, more true today or true in a different way, but today we see the art of the past as nobody saw it before. We actually perceive it in a different way. That's interesting because now it's even true for film. And lots of different kinds of art. Uh, again, from the book. The camera isolated momentary appearances and in doing so destroyed the idea that images were timeless. Or to put it another way, the camera showed that the notion of time passing was inseparable from the experience of the visual. I I can't believe there was one point in my life where I'd be able to understand that clearly. It'll take me a minute, but, you know, this is just to help you sleep. The invention of the camera changed the way men saw, people saw, Berger, The visible came to mean something different to them. This was immediately reflected in painting. For the Impressionists, the visible no longer presented itself to man in order to be seen. On the contrary, the visible, in continual flux, became fugitive. For the Cubists, the visible was no longer what confronted the single eye, but the totality of possible views taken from points all around the object or person being depicted. When the camera reproduces a painting, it destroys the uniqueness of its image. As a result, its meaning changes. Or more exactly, its meaning multiplies and fragments into many meanings. It's kind of like he's kind of talking about the Bruce Bolton fantasy fiction time machine there, I think. But in a non-painting context. Now, the second essay is all photographs, so that would be really odd and boring and uh, fragmented to just do images. So I'm going to skip to the third essay. Let's read you the opening of the third essay. According to usage and conventions, which are at last being questioned but by no means overcome, the social presence of a woman is different in kind from that of a man. A man's presence is dependent upon the promise of power which he embodies. If that promise is large and credible, his presence is striking. If it is small or incredible, he is found to have little presence. The promised power may be moral, physical, temperamental, economic, social, sexual, but its object is always exterior to the man. I'm going to skip ahead here. One might simplify this by saying men act and women appear. He's talking about in paintings. Men look at women. Women watch themselves being looked at. Now, this was one of the, my, uh, I'm, I'm talking about the book. This is really a, a, a powerful thing I took away from this, about these old master paintings. Men look at women. Oh, wait. This determines not only most relations between men and women, but also the relation of women to themselves. The surveyor of woman and herself is male. The surveyed being, surveyed, Female. Thus, she turns herself into an object, and most particularly an object of vision, a sight. She is not naked as she is, she is naked as the spectator sees her. Often, as with the favorite subject of Susanna and the elders, this is an actual theme of the picture. We join the elders to spy on Susanna taking her bath. She looks back at us looking at her. Actually, I actually have a note in the margins. My handwriting has not changed. She makes herself available to the viewer. Susanna, in another version of the subject by Tintoretto, Susanna is looking at herself in the mirror. Thus, she joins the spectators of herself. Another note in The margin requests to women to watch themselves because they are on display for the sake of the viewer. The mirror was often used as a symbol of vanity of women. The moralizing, however, was mostly hypocritical. And this this is a, a painting, a comment in the margin, a painting, Vanity by Melming, Memming, Memming, Memling. Mirror used to offer another view of her. You painted a naked woman because you enjoyed looking at her. You put a mirror in a hand and you called the painting Vanity, thus morally condemning the woman whose nakedness you had depicted for your own pleasure. That's the hip- hypocrisy. It's cr- I mean, makes me laugh that like Aria style the madness. And this might this is out of context, but you know we're trying to sleep here. This sucks about it's out of context, but it talks about a uh, Nell Gwynne, one of the king's mistresses, by Laley. Shows her passively looking at the spectator, staring at her naked. This nakedness, however, is not an. This nakedness is not, however, an expression of her own feelings. It is a sign of her submission to the owner's feelings or demands, the owner of both the woman and the painting. Boom, lay that on you. To be naked is to be oneself. To be nude is to be seen naked by others and yet not recognized for oneself. A naked body has to be seen as an object in order to become a nude. The sight of it as an object stimulates the use of it as an object. Nakedness reveals itself. Nudity is placed on display. to be naked is to be without disguise. To be on display is to have the surface of one's own skin, the hairs of one's own body, turned into a disguise which, in that situation can never be discarded. The nude is condemned to never being naked. Nudity is in a form of dress in the average European oil painting of the nude, The principal protagonist is never painted. He is the spectator in front of the picture. And he's presumed to be a man. Obviously, I could go on forever reading from this book. Uh, and I, I, again, I, I hopefully, we'll find someplace on, online. I know it's on YouTube, but I think it, hopefully it's on someplace uh, where John Berger and the BBC can get some uh, credit and pay for it. So let's find that first. But maybe it's not, unfortunately. So we'll look into that. And you can pick up the book, I'm sure. Uh, I, I would, it's, uh, let's see, I mean, the copy I have is, is uh printing by Penguin. So I'm sure I'll look it up and I'll put it in the show notes. Okay. So that is about ways of seeing. And if nothing else, I hope it bored you, but I, I think maybe enlighten, maybe enlighten your subconscious if you're asleep a little bit. So thanks. Right, hey, next thing we're going to talk about is hand washing, because before Oberyn's big battle with the mountain, he washes his hands off and not in a, in some sort of, it seemed to be some sort of ritual way. It wasn't a, a big deal ritual, but there was also no reason for him to wash his hands as far as like, they could have just, you know, like they chose to show us that. And as a character, he chose to do that. And when I say they, I mean the, the the writers and the filmmakers. And I just thought it was a nice scene because he he even washes his hands with flair, but he's watching it washing it in a again a, some sort of symbolic way because he's just dipping his hands and and then drying them. But I just thought it was very Oberyn-y and a nice touch. And then I was like, okay, what is How is hand-washing? I know hand-washing and ritual purification are part of a lot of faiths. So I thought we'd look into both hand-washing and faiths. Okay, as far as hand-washing goes, just wash your hands, okay? I don't know how else to... And I know there's people out there that still don't do it. Myself included, I guess I'm talking... I usually wash my hands, but probably not enough. And... Uh I guess the WHO and C D C for healthcare workers. You should wash your hands with soap when they're visually dirty, but otherwise they recommend washing it with the alcohol sanitizer. Now I'm gonna crowdsource this out. I don't know if there's controversy around that or not. I know there's controversy around antibacterial soaps. But I'm just going to read through the CDC stuff. I mean, you don't need to use an antibacterial. So you probably shouldn't. It's got some crazy chemicals on there. Uh, But just wash your hands, okay? And here's what the CDC says. When should you wash your hands? Before, during, and after preparing food. Before eating food. Before caring for someone who's sick. Before treating a cut or wound. After using the toilet. After changing diapers or cleaning up for a child. Let's use the toilet. After blowing your nose, coughing, or sneezing. After touching an animal. Animal feed or animal waste after touching the garbage. What is the right way to wash your soap? Wet your hands with clean running water, warm or cold. Turn off the tap, apply soap. Lather your hands by rubbing them together with soap. Be sure to lather the back of your hands between your fingers under your nails. Scrub for at least 20 seconds. Need a timer? Hum the happy birthday song from beginning to end twice. I wonder if that includes smells like a zoo. You smell like a zoo. You uh, rinse your hands wa- well under clean running water. Dry your hands with a towel or air dry them. What should you do if you don't have soap, clean running water? Washing hands is the best way. With soap and water is the best way. Soap and water are not available. Use alcohol sanitizer with 60% alcohol. They quickly reduce the number of microbes on hands in some situations, but don't eliminate all types of germs. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Hand sanitizers may not be as effective when hands are visibly dirty. Okay, then I don't see anything else. I also heard an NPR report a couple of years ago, and I'll look for it, that uh, the chorus from Layla is is better. I guess I don't know which version, though, because there's like the now you have the ubiquitous air clapped and unplugged Layla and then the electric Layla of how long to wash your hands for. But I'll look into that too. But wash your hands first and foremost. Uh, I also have a very dense article I'll put in the show notes from the uh, NCBI, which stands for, I don't know, something. has to do with the national National containment of biology infections or something. It's really the National Institute of Health. It's a very dense article on religious and cultural aspects of hand hygiene. So if you're interested in more about um, that, it's too dense to even get into because it's a government article. It's not bullet-pointed for people that like to scan stuff like me, so I'm not going to try to read through it uh, and totally botch. You know, I just <laughs> I just. You know what I mean. So I'll have that in the show notes. But we have a lot of cultures that have uh, ritual purification. I'm going to start with Judaism. Ritual washing in Judaism, according to Wikipedia. You know, the uh, foremost authority on (laughs) uh, made-up stuff. They talk talk about ablution. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but... uh, I would have pronounced it differently anyway from my mind. But you have two, two forms. Uh, taval, tav, tavila, tavila, which is a full body immersion. And a net ilat, yadayim, which is a washing of hands with a cup. And these are references to ritual washing found in the Hebrew Bible. And elaborated, they've been codified. Uh, here we go. Washing the hands. The Talmud uses a requirement of washing the hands from Leviticus fifteen eleven as a hint for general hand washing law. The general Hebrew the, the general Hebrew the general Hebrew term for ritual hand washing is net netalat yadayim, which means lifting up of the hands requires that water used for ritual washing be pure, unused, and not contain other substances or be discolored. Water also poured from the vessel as a human human act. Contemporary practice is pour water any chance three times for most purposes using a cup, alternating the hands between occurrences. So that's uh, in Judaism. We also have ritual purification in the uh, Bahá'í faith, they do uh, ritual ablutions of the washing of the hands and the face before saying the oblig- obligatory prayers, as well as, as well as the recitation of the Great Name ninety five times. They have a safe neg- significance beyond washing and should be performed, even if one has bathed itself bathed even if one has bathed oneself. Immediately before the prayer, fresh ablutions should be performed. Buddhism. In Japanese Buddhism, they have a basement, basin called the Sukubai at temples for ablutions. Christianity has a baptism as a form of ritual purification. Roman Catholic churches have la- lavers around the building for the laity to use as a ritual symbolism of cleansing themselves usually by dipping fingertips in holy water and making the sign of the cross. In traditional liturgical churches, a laver, often embedded in the wall, exists for the priest and deacon to wash their hands before celebrating the Eucharist. Many ancient churches were built with a large fountain in the courtyard for Christians to wash before entering the church. Hinduism. Various traditions within Hinduism follow different standards for ritual purity and purification. An important part of purif- ritual purification in Hinduism is the bathing of the entire body in rivers considered holy, such as the Ganges. It uh, talks about how, you know, the are of physical impurities in the water. Lesser af- aspects of Hindu purification ritual include the touching and sipping of pure water while reciting specific mantras. Again, I'm not you know, the end-all be-all of, um... and Wikipedia for faith is not, uh, you know... Indigenous American religions. In many of the indigenous peoples of the Americas, one of the forms of ritual purification is the use of a sauna, also known as a sweat lodge, as preparation for a variety of ceremonies, a of sud-smudge sticks, cleanses area of evil presence... Some groups like the southeastern tribe, the Cherokee, practice to a lesser degree, going to water. Many anthropologists that study the Cherokees, like James Adair, tried to connect these groups with the lost tribes of Israel, based on religious practices including going to water, but this form of historiography is mostly Christian or Mormon wish fulfillment rather than respectable anthropology. Islamic ritual purification is centered around the preparation for ritual prayer. Ritual purification takes the form of ablution. Oh, there's a picture of people washing their prayer at a mosque in Lahore, Pakistan. Shinto. In Shinto, the main form of ritual purification is misogi, which involves natural running water, especially waterfalls. Rather than being entirely naked, men usually use loincloths and women wear kimonos, both additionally wearing headbands. Okay, so that's not the end-all be-all about ritual purification or or why oberon washed his hands, but I do think it's interesting as a phenomenon among human people, all these faiths spread all over the world that I don't know how connect. I mean, I know some of these faiths are connected to each other, some aren't. But they all, a lot of them have an aspect of purification. I mean, I think the important thing for me, other than the interest in saying, okay, it is important to make, be clean. And it's like, wow, like how does faith p- play into you know furthering our species and keeping us alive by keeping us clean? I, I just prefer I was raised in a faith where it's like, oh wait, no, no, you're not di- you're you're dirty on the inside. So I prefer faith that doesn't tell me that I need to be cleansed because there's something, um, because there's something repulsive or disgusting about my humanity. Because I just don't believe that. But uh, and maybe that's just to, well, maybe I do believe it, and that's why I'm projecting it onto uh, faiths. But I do like this aspect of purification ritual. I don't know. And then I like that it was included in the show. maybe it's not ritual. Maybe Oberon. I mean, there was some speculation online, like, did this play into the poison aspect? Did this play into the poison, use of poison? But uh, it seemed like inconclusive at best. But a lot of people that rewatched the episode for, um, you know, noted that hand-washing and this dude polishing up his, uh, you know, stick of death or whatever were separate towels and everything. So I don't know, I just like to think it was a nice... I don't know, just it's something in there that was like, oh, we know a little bit more. That's something Oberon would do, wash his hands before battle. And maybe it gives him a better grip. Maybe I'm just too interested. But yeah, that's it. I'm trying to help you fall asleep. I hope that let you know that it's hand washing's important. And yeah, it's good that your faith, if you believe in a faith with a ritual cleansing, maybe you'll take it a little bit more seriously now, or, or with more pride. I don't know. And you're not, uh, your humanity is not repulsive to me, okay? And as a, a, a our, whatever, we got this group community, you know, sleep's a cleansing thing, I hear, that it cleanses your brain. So I hope you're already asleep and your brain's cleaning itself. I guess this maybe this could be a ritual abolition of I don't know. Let's just why would you say we move on? All right. So as I was talking about the open. This episode was a rich one. After after uh, rewatching it, when I was first rewatching it and taking my notes, like just uh, well behind the scenes. It can't. It's not really behind the scenes because uh, Game of Thrones was like a month or two ago. So I'd watched the episode already, for pleasure, which I will continue to do. In the few, next season, if this podcast, I'm assuming I'll still be doing this podcast, but uh, then I'll rewatch it for 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 the show. And I mean, this time I was watching it two months after, or a month after. But so on rewatching it, you know, I already kind of remembered some of this stuff, and I was like. Okay, well there's some heartache and some heartbreak in this episode and the heartache was like the Melsandra grey worm possible love, but just like a aching or a longing between the two of them. That kind of feels like if he's got if he's got the pillar, you know, may uh, is love between a eunuch and a woman possible if he has no pillar and no stones? Of course, I mean we, there's tales out there of You know, I don't need to get into what makes a relationship because Game of Thrones is doing it for me. So I said, oh, there's a heartache. And then there's a crushing heartbreak with uh, Jorah and the Khaleesi where both their hearts are broken kind of in different ways. Hers by kind of feeling violated and betrayed and his by being thrown out and probably his secret harbored fantasy of him and the Khaleesi. I don't, I don't know, I don't know, because it's Jorah's secret harbored fantasy, but, you know, there's always been a sense that he's in love with the Khaleesi. On multiple levels, I think. But, uh... so on initial pass, I was like, okay, I'll just talk about that, the heartache and the heartbreak, and and that's rich enough. But then as I started looking through my notes, I realized this whole episode, or at least my other than the the end, and even the end, is about love, uh, and and its different forms in in Westeros and Game of Thrones, and I mean I can't believe it because I, I think I'm I think there is something to this, and we'll go through uh, the different types of love that were revealed in this sh- this episode, and then it made me want think, I mean you know those shirts that say it's like Westeros is for lovers, <laughs> and that. I, Again, another crowdsourcing thing is like, what was the first area? Was it the um, Poconos? Poconos is for lovers? Or, you know, and now that Target or Old Navy sell those shirts. It's probably, you know, gone past it. But what was the first area to say, oh, our area is for lovers. But Westeros really is for lovers of love. And... And so I did some research into types of love, and I think we covered that in one other episode a while back, but as I started to look at these kinds of love, and I'll talk about them first. Okay, well, yeah, let's, hmm, no, let's just keep going. So there are all these types of love, but especially Greeks came up with these terms, and then uh, C.S. Lewis kind of elaborated on it, and that's what we're going to talk about, but those are more idealistic forms of love that don't really, um, you know, love between two humans, whether it's a parent and a child or, um, a man and a Khaleesi or two equals or whatever, two, two, two people like for passion or friendship or whatever. Those are more idealistic. It's like love on the ground. Love, and practice, and maybe "love" is the wrong word—but um, interpersonal relations. But I think—I don't know—we're going to use love. It's a lot. It's a—it's a lot dirtier and a lot more complicated than philosophers would like us to. To you know, they want to lay on us all this, yeah. Uh, you know it's or people that, and—and and this isn't a knock on, but self-help type people oh, there's like these type of love and that's it, you know. So you just got to figure out if that guy with the lacquer next to you, you got some filial for him or some eros or maybe it's some ludus. That's not how it works and this Game of Thrones really gave us a hyper, actually either a realistic portrayal of it or a hyper-realistic portrayal of uh, how love really works and I think it has to uh, from a cultural perspective maybe like maybe we need to expand our repertoire of types of love and I'm not just talking about you know poly amorous relationships or you know whatever types of love between men and men women and women men and women or three people or whatever or as we talked about last episode men and goats but uh Edward Albee. Uh, but yeah, so let's 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 dive into it, shall we? Okay, so I'm gonna run through this love notes, and then we'll talk about how it applies to Game of Thrones. But you got the agape, which uh, what is this from Wikipedia? Maybe I got a couple of different sources of stuff. So you got agape, which is like a love in a spiritual sense. Uh, could, it refers to the term se agapo, which means I love you in ancient Greek. But it also refers to unconditional love, uh, generally. Eros is passionate love, sensual desire, and longing. Romantic pure emotion without the balance of logic, love at first sight. Then you got philia, which means affectionate regard or friendship. In both ancient and modern Greek, this is the type of love that has give and take, dispassionate, virtuous, virtuous love. Developed by Aristotle, they have storge, which means affection, in ancient modern Greek, natural affection, like a parent for offspring. Rarely used in ancient works, it also almost an exclusively a descriptor of relationships within the family. And then we cruise over to yesmagazine.org, happiness, uh, ancient Greek six words for love, article by, uh, I, put, I have to put in the show notes, I don't know who it's by, I'm sorry. First up, they talk about eros. Eros involved a loss of control that frightened Greeks, but there was also two types of eros. There's the positive version, which is, uh, you know, based on the goddess of fertility, or Greek god of fertility, I guess, sexual passion, desire. But I also could see a more negative side that was dangerous, fiery, and irrational that could possess you. Then we have philia. On this version, it's philia with an A second variety of love was philia, friendship the Greeks valued for uh, more than the base sexuality of Eros. Kind of similar to what we covered. And then we have ludus. They call it playful love in this article. Uh, The affection between children or young lovers. We've all had a taste of it, flirting and teasing, early stages of a relationship. We also live out our ludus when we flirt or go out dancing. Dancing with strangers may be the ultimate ludic activity, almost a playful substitute for sex itself. Social norms may frown on this frivolity, but a little more ludus might be what we need to spice up our love lives. Then we have agape, which they say is love for everyone. The fourth love, perhaps the most radical, was selfless love. C.S. Rulos referred to this as gift love. So that's ag- agape. Then this one says there's pragma or long standing love. This is mature love, deep understanding between long married couples. It's about making compromises to help make the relationship work over time, showing patience and tolerance. Then they have a sixth kind of love here, filiautia. Filautia. Philautia. The Greek sixth variety of love was flautia. Quit flouting around. Self-love. And I'm not talking about auto-erotic, I don't think. Uh, And the clever Greeks realized there was two types. One was an unhealthy variety associated with narcissism where you became self-obsessed and focused on fame and fortune. A more healthier version enhanced your wider capacity to love. C.S. Lewis, he wrote a book called The Four Loves, which kind of played on this uh, Christian version of the Greek uh, kinds of love, I think. This also from Wikipedia. There was Need Love, which was uh, the love of a child for its mother, epitomized by God's love for humanity to the disparagement of the former. However swiftly this insight The nature is is more complicated. A child's need for parental comfort is a necessity, not selfish indulgence. Oh, and then there's gift love, which is a parent for a child. Need love is a child for a parent, I guess. Pleasures, we kind of covered that. Um, I think it was controversial, maybe, because C.S. Lewis believes that pleasures has a base need, so shouldn't be shamed. And then he covers philia and storage again, eros, agape. So that's a basic rundown on the on the Greek loves. So let's take so let's pull out some relationships and take a look at them. All right, all right. So before before we get into the interpersonal relationships, uh, I just want to say this episode was so dense. There's t- there's two uh, two more things about the love I can not even cover. One is the love boat, and I'm like, man, this would make a good episode. of Love boat, all these everyone from uh, Game of Thrones. I don't even know enough about the Love Boat. I don't even know if I ever saw an entire episode. Um, But I'm going to look into that, and of course it will be me singing the Love Boat theme song. So that was one thing. And then Ramsey and uh, Roose's interactions made me think of the Cat Stevens song, Father and Son. And as I started dig- digging into it, I was like, well, I don't know if this matches. And then, so yesterday... I was like, let me listen to Father and Son a few times. Uh, and I was going on this bike ride, and, and and it was in the San Francisco side. And once I started playing uh, Father and Son, and it couldn't wasn't safe to start changing around to other songs, so I started playing other Cat Stevens songs. And I'm not kidding. The next five or six songs matched up with... Uh, some of, some of the other, they were all love, seemed like different types of love songs. So at some point, hopefully I'll do a bonus episode or an extra episode about the love boat. And maybe that Cat Stevens might have written a musical about love and Game of Thrones even before Game of Thrones existed. Which is, again, I mean, maybe that's why he changed his name. Might, maybe he's covering it up. Maybe he's false, falsely committed to his faith. And he had the Bruce Bolton fantasy fiction time Shane, or maybe he has, like, a Ramsey Bolton one that's, like, from the future beyond, like, it's, like, a better version of mine because it came out after. And he's cruising around the fantasy fiction alternative metaverse, right, writing songs and then going, I don't, I don't know, it's possible. So those, those, that's stuff to look out for. But yeah, so let's talk about these relationships. We're going we're gonna to bounce around the episode because look, we're going to start with some easy ones. Now this one's a softball. Tyrion and Jamie. That's definitely, and this is an easy joke, but I'm I have to do it, is like Jamie's pretty good at sibling love, loving his siblings. And, and honestly, it does seem like it in this episode, is that there is some filio or filia between the two of them strained but you could see it uh when they're together and they're having the moment talking about olson and also like jamie's like who gives a dusty fuck because he's kind of like dude you're about to like i don't know jamie their intellects are different on a different level capacity wise but also jamie's like dude are you sure you're not just distracting yourself because you know it's about the most important moment of your life is coming up here and I care about you and I love you. I and mean, then I'm putting words in Jamie's mouth, but you could see it when they, during the, the battle or the fight between the Viper and the mountain, they would cut for, they were cutting to Jamie's face, Cersei's face, Tywin's face. And Jamie was really enjoying not only a comeuppance of his father and his sister and maybe a sense of justice, but he was also really. I don't know. I felt like he loved his brother, and he's a complicated dude. I mean, he's uh, not a good man. He's made some very dark choices, but he loves his brother. I mean, and then he also has some sort of love for his sister, but that wasn't in the. Well, I guess some sort of eros. I, I guess like a, I guess he has the darker side of eros, like a, like an insatiable longing for his sister. Uh, that is uncontrollable because he raped her. He seems to both uh, spite her and love her. So, I guess, yeah, Jamie's caught in the grips of that as well. Um, I didn't even think about that uh, because it's just because they didn't really interact in this episode that I remember. So, that's uh, Jamie and Tyrion, and I guess Cersei. Next up is uh, like so the agape, which is like this unconditional love for others. Or a love of others, or this idealistic love. Now, there's not a whole lot of that in Game of Thrones, or in, unfortunately in real life. And you know, I was thinking, does Khaleesi have agape for? But then she just—I'm not sure. But then I was like, oh, maybe there's like an agape light, or or a agape, agape, whatever you say. I guess agape light would be the wrong word because in this episode. There is love for uh, people of the same culture, for people of the same culture, or people of the same position, for people of the same position. And unfortunately, that's the way it is in our world. Our world works a lot that same way too. Is like, oh, you're the same as me. So I do have some sort of base level of love for you because we're similar. And I mean, so that's almost like the dark side of agape, maybe, instead of agape light. We could say, that's kind of like dark chocolate, agape dark. Uh, Agape, agape dark. Yeah, so we saw it in uh, the beginning of the episode because uh, the others have agape dark for each other. I think when a does not, like, leaves Gilly alive, is that a love of others for others saying, oh, you're the same as me, I want to protect you. Or you're the same as me, an exploited woman. Well, I agree, it's not as exploited as Gilly's been, but I don't know. And then definitely the people in the Vale, especially the upper class of the Vale, have a love for themselves and uh, a dislike for foreigners. And uh, Baelish kind of, you know, gives this little Ellis Island speech. But uh, I don't know, they're like, I have a love for, um, I, don't, I don't know, so so that's a kind of love. We'll call it agape dark uh, or agape light. Or we could come up, if you guys want to come up with a new term, that's more creative. That's fine as well. I'm trying to think, is there any other instances, but I, I can't think of one right now. So let's go on to the next relationship. So let's talk one kind of love of the Khaleesi. Because so I was like, is Khaleesi practicing this unconditional love? I mean, she is breaking the chains but she's also not um, her mercy doesn't extend to all people or she she's learning so she's maybe on a, maybe Khaleesi. i don't know what happens does she learn this unconditional love or does she not she's on this path of learning to love on a greater sense and learning the pain of love i guess on a on, a, on another way i saw the thing in the uh, i saw this in the article from the yes magazine.org Talking about the Filio Atuta. And it talks about how the healthier version of self love enhances your wider capacity to love. And that kind of sums up the Khaleesi for me is that, like, she's trying to learn and she's actually trying to be a good queen and understand what it means to be merciful or vengeful or. I don't know, she's, she's actually trying to increase her capacity for love and leadership. So, you know, hats off to the Khaleesi, or heads off. But yeah, so that's that's another kind of love and a relationship with Khaleesi and the world at large, I guess. All right, next up is like Arya and the Hound. And uh, they, there's definitely some love there, even though Arya harbors a vengeful, you know, he, she the Hound's still on her wish list. There was more what I took away from this episode is the brilliant scene where an exasperated hound finds out that uh, the Lady of the Vale's dead, and then Arya just cracks up. And that kind of seemed like... Um, it reminds me of a lot of fiction I enjoy, particularly the comic The Watchman by Alan Moore, the book The Stranger by Camus, I think, C-A-M, I would say Camus, but I heard somebody smarter than me say Camus, C-A-M-U-S, works of people like Kirk Vonnegut, is that, and I don't think they're all of the same standpoint, but you have the comedian and the watchman, and then you have uh, the the stranger in the book, the like, the stranger, and then Kurt Vonnegut has a famous phrase, and so it goes. And also maybe the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy might throw in there. I'm not sure. But they all have this view of the world. Is that like... Um, that not... That life not might not be meaningless. But that life is kind of ridiculous. And like not only... Or life... And it could be taken as like... One step worse than life is pointless. Like, not only is the life pointless, that it's fucking ridiculous, man. Can you believe this shit? Or it could be, like, take a lighter attitude. Like, it's so ridiculous, all you can do is laugh. Um, I think com- comedian... I don't know. I don't. I, we don't have time to get into the nuances of it, because I'm not very capable of nuance. But they all look at the wife, and that seemed like that self- episode just nailed that. Like the situation was so ridiculous that all you could do is crack up. The hound is so exasperated and they're like, I mean, little they know they gave, I don't know, I think they're going to give up and turn around, which is even more hilarious because their sister's up there. Um, But yeah, it's just like that all you can do is laugh. And sometimes that's a good lesson for life is like a, all you can do is laugh. So I don't know what to call that. Um, Comedic love, Kamuian love, stranger, uh, stranger loves, (laughs) Uh, Kamu love, Kamuanian love. And so it goes, that's all I'll say. And so it goes, love. All you can do is laugh. Okay, so that's another, I don't know. I, I don't know if you're still with me, But that to me is a kind of, that is a sense of a love of life and circumstances, maybe, or maybe I'm just, and there's also a love of them between them. That is a, a love of kind of tolerance. It kind of goes along with that theme of like, we're in this ridiculous situation together. Let's make the most of it, or, well, yeah, let's make the most of it, or maybe not make the most of it, but. Let's get through this. Uh, I don't know. It's like this is no, it's more like they don't quite embrace their situation, but they're both fumbling about in the in similar ways together. And at least they're like, uh Oh well, this is our circumstance. All you can do is laugh. Fine. I mean, in the end of the episode. That's all you can do. But uh not so know. maybe there's a better word for that too. But definitely the Greeks don't I mean Come on. I mean, what do we got? I mean, maybe, yeah, maybe I should get a hold of Cat Stevens. We can get the two Bruce Bolton and Ramsey Bolton fancy fiction time machines. Hop in the metaverse, you know, turn into the transverse and hit these Greeks and, you know, have them sit down and watch some Game of Thrones and be like, yo, look at this, the Hound and Arya. How come, you know, you get this isn't Agape? And don't give me that, it's because it ain't, because she doesn't. All right? So, Arya and the Hound. Again, we could go on and on, but let's move on to something else. All right, so the next up uh, would be Ramsey and Reek. And that kind of seems like a little bit of a a need love that, uh, that C.S. Lewis talked about, like a parent for a child. It's like at this point, whatever's gone on between the two of them, Ramsey kind of needs Ramsey. He doesn't do too well without him. Doesn't do too well with him. But uh, So it's kind of like a man-dog situation. I mean, as at least how Ramsey views it. I don't know. Well, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. But uh, uh, so it's just a man-dog situation. An unfortunate one. Doesn't, Ramsey doesn't treat his dog very well. But still kind of love. Man, and, and I guess the Greeks didn't have them. You know, I, lo- I mean... The love between human and pet is uh, a unique one, and it's real. We all know it that have pets. It could be a dog, cat, guinea pig, fish. Oof. I mean, even if you can pet an animal, it's different, I think. But I, I could be wrong. So don't hate on me, tropical fish owners. But it is a unique relationship. Ramsey and Rick is probably the darker side of it. Isn't it need love? I don't know, like, is caring for an animal, I mean, I guess all this, um, you know, soldiers returning and and raising rescue animals, and then people having rescue animals proves that it is, it's like we need, like, by caring for an animal, it stimulates something in us, and it I mean, obviously animals want to be taken care of, and they want to be treated lovingly, uh, and i think reek probably wants... at this point just that's all reek wants is like a little bit of uh, his master's attention and, and some some relief some security but i don't know disturbing disturbing stuff now ramsey and roose on the other hand that's another complicated one at, at first sight it's like okay is it a father and son love or a father and a half son love father bastard son love I mean, uh, back in the day, Ned Stark and Jon Snow had a complicated relationship. So do Ramsay and Roose. But I was like, oh, I don't know. This is more of like a mutual gain love because if if we make if we you got me this uh, Mo Kalen, I'm gonna give make you my son. You know we have all this the whole North now. You know we're we're mutually benefiting each other. So it's like a you do for me, I do for you still based in some sort of love or intimacy, because he's like, walk with me, let's be alone. But um, then I was, so that was like past one. Okay, so you know, I looked up the song Father and Son, and I'm like, well, this song kind of fits, we can make it fit. But I'm like, these two, I don't know if this is a father. And it sounds like more of like an Eddie Murphy, what have you done for me lately situation. But then I started thinking about this whole tradition of flaying men. And it's off-putting to examine. But then when you look at it under a microscope, like you got Ramsey taking this flaying men to this next level um, of like breaking men and breaking their spirits. And all of a sudden, Ramsey's sadism, like I'm like, what if he's less sadistic? Is he less sadistic than his father? The whole time I'm thinking this got to be one of the sickest characters ever created this ramsey bolton i mean i thought roose you know i rue roose i don't even i can't even i'm so frightened by ramsey i can't even have a clear look at my feelings about him but then i'm like what if he's less sadistic than his father like his and at least in his mind he's what he's doing this torture is purposeful like he's like oh i'm trying to make this man into a dog or into a servant of us, Father. Uh, other than just a horrific display of power, and as a symbol of uh, of uh, how we can enact uh, exact our power and impose our will on others by flaying people, or getting you know getting something from them, information or what, or using them symbolically, is that less sadistic to like? make these zombies or whatever. I mean, it's not, I'm not talking from a moral perspective either. And then also it reeks, I hate to use the pun, but it's true of like desperation of like, Papa, Papa, look at me. Um, I want to be your full son. I want to be your And he's so pleased to bathe in his father's, um, uh, pride or, or pleasure. Uh, it's like, oh, oh, you know, and then it's like, man, what, what a horrible, you know, look, look at this monster you made, Roos. I'm gonna, I rue you even more now, bro. Roos, I rue you. Because you, yeah, this, uh, this debt will be paid. And if it's, I have to climb in the fancy fiction time machine and throw the stuff off for George R. R. Martin by crossing over into his metaverse to, uh, deal with Roos Bolton, so be it. Uh... No, I'm just kidding. Please. I don't want to. I love you, George R. R. Martin. But uh, that was just like me ruining out, you know. But, uh, so yeah, so that's Ramsey and Reek is, uh, or now Ramsey and Roos is, uh, it's more, you know, I'll do this for you, you do this for me. And then kind of a desperation from Ramsey, more on a subconscious level of Papa, 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 look at me. Hey, hey, my diaper's full. Check me out. We're so far over time here, but Um, Baelish clearly has some sort of love of self, uh, narcissism. So that's a pretty easy one. Tyrion also has a love of curiosity and knowledge. I think Olson is a symbol of that in his uh, talk about the beetle smashing and under more of like a, I guess almost like an eros, a longing, and a, a passionate longing. And a lot of times, longing is unrequited, or without—it's just longing without a a destination. And that's like Olson, like Tyrion's longing—longing to understand—and I think probably on some level to be understood, or to be respected, or or something. But yeah, it's longing. It's like well, I want to make sense. Like, I mean, not only why—you know—why was I born a dwarf? And why have I been put through this? I mean, maybe that's what's operating on this lower level. But then also on the outside, it's like, why was Cousin Olsen born this way? Why does he smash Beatles? Why, why, why? Um, and unfortunately, then it's like, is this just some circular dance we're doing? But there is a love there or a drive or a longing or a passion for for knowing more and understanding. Again, what the hell? The Greeks are so busy, uh, and it's not a—it's not just selfish either. So it's not—you can't say, "Oh, well, he just wants to know it for himself." No, it—it it was a challenge to him to unlock this secret, and then became an obsession. Uh, so maybe it is. Maybe they do have a word. It's called eros, but you can't um, screw a, uh, a, a unlocking a, a mystery of the psyche or. Or why people do things. So I don't know. I don't even know what to call it. We'll call Olson Olsen love. No, no, that doesn't fit either. I don't know. Again, I think I'll retouch this episode because it's so great. Um, and maybe I'll come up with some terminology. Let's just call it Labrosan love. but Library and Olsen together. Labrosan love. All right, so then we have Oberon and vengeance. Or justice. Oberon at least in this episode... Like, love being the vehicle for both vengeance for the things done to his sister, but all for but also, well, I guess he sees it as justice. It might just be vengeance. Or it might be justice, depending on where you are in your scale of uh, universal truths. Or it could be both. You know, sometimes vengeance can be just. Definitely in the eyes of um, Oberyn. I, I mean, I tend to agree with him, but... You know, if you got if the mountain's got a wife out there, he's not, she's not gonna agree to it. Or you know, if he has any uh, any filios like bros, uh, well the hound doesn't love him. It sounds like the dad preferred the mountain over the hound. So that dad again, I might hop in the fancy fiction time machine, go back, and you know, take care of the father of the hound and the mountain, teach him a couple lessons. There's my love of vengeance and justice seriously coming up. So, yeah, see, that just did stir something inside I me. Mean, I'm not being making it up. Like, there's a fire inside me now to get in. I got to, you know, go into my Floydman supply and, you know, tune stuff up. But I get back there and, and make this Mr. Clegane, you know, pay some debts. But Oberyn has this fire in him and a love for it. And I, I don't think there is another word. You might say a pat. It's the same thing. He wants his justice. He wants vengeance. And he, want, he wants to be the uh, the actor, the uh, the one that's um, making sure the Lannisters or the uh, Martells pay their debts or whatever I guess it would be. And he wants, he, he not only did he want it, he wanted to be a spectacle. He wanted Tywin to be called out. And unfortunately it didn't end well for Oberyn. But that doesn't negate the fact that he, not only he, I mean, that guy's got a lot, you know, he was, he was into a lot of different kinds of love and his capacity for love was pretty wide. I mean, not even in a joking way, he had a whole sexual re- re- repertoire and a lot of, Children, he seemed to care about and love. He uh, had also had a little bit of the Tyrian, uh, Lebrosan love. So, yeah, And he had a love for his sister when she, you know, and now he has a love for vengeance. So, vengeful love. And that, just because it's not always a good idea, you can't just say, Oh, this is another kind of Eros. You know, come on, ancient Greeks. When we watch this together, you'll understand a little bit more. I don't know how many times I'm going to have to watch it with you. Aristotle, you're so brilliant. (laughs) We'll be struck. Aristotle's going to take out, like, it's going to be a race. Like I'm going to be going out to take out Clegane, and somehow Aristotle will get Cat Stevens' fantasy fiction time machine and come up behind me and and take me down. And I'll kind of be like, instead of the... Mountain and the Viper or the Mountain and the Squirrel. Be like the dull, the dull and the brilliant, and I'm not the brilliant one. All right, so that's another one. All right, I want to finish up with the love discussion with the three kinds of love. We're kind of, or the three relationships are the most traditional as far as romantic love goes. And uh, that's Sam and Gilly, Alessandra and Grey Worm and Jorah and Khaleesi. And it kinda of gave us three degrees of this crush, attraction, uh, love, like Sam and Gilly. Kinda of seems I think the Greeks did use the word like Ludus, like a playful love, but more of um a fumbling love, like you have Gilly, who's been through a lot, especially at the hands of men. She's she's suffered abuse. And I'm sure that deep down she she must have her own opinion of men and love, or I mean maybe she's not she might not have ever known any kind of love, maybe some sisterly love, and they have Sam who is um low self-esteem maybe maybe a little bit unfamiliar with attraction, and you know he he's a little bit uh less mature when it comes to romance, so it's clear he has feelings for Gilly. What's less clear is what, how Gilly feels about Sam, and how will this, how it'll end up. But it's a, all, we've all been in this position before. Might you might be in it now, might have been in it last week, might have been in it, you know, twenty years ago. But where we've been the one longing for someone, but not just in a sexually fire burning way, but more a way like I don't even know what to do. Does this person even know I exist? Uh, like, like you know, oh, they seem to be, they seem to tolerate me, but is there any chance of us getting together? And I don't even know how to broach the subject, like, because I'm so un- unconfident and, and unfamiliar. So that's Sam and Gilly, one kind of love, some Gilly love, uh, I'd call it, because it's not... It's not quite ludus, it's not quite eros. It's kind of like 8th um, grade love, I'd say, but it can exist at any point in life. Then you have Melisandre and Grey Worm. Now you're getting into, uh, well, you might be a freshman year of high school. You could be in 7th or 8th grade. But this is more like, whoa, 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 Something stirring. Might be in your loins, might be in your belly. Might be in your heart, might be in your mind, it might be all of those. But now you're feeling it like a a longing. Like I don't think Sam maybe Sam's got low testosterone. And I'm not joking, like where he's not driven by the physical urge to be with Gilly, and that helps guide his other actions, probably for the best, because I don't think Gilly would like that, because she's already dealt with that bullshit. But as far as Melsandra and Greyworm, we've got But then you have an added complication. Does this dude have stones and no pillar? Or does he have a pillar and no stones? Or does he not have neither? But that doesn't negate how he feels. And I think it's a nice analysis of where these feelings come from. And that her naked body stirs something in him. She stirs something in him in general. But when he sees her beautiful body, he can't take his eyes off it. And she recognizes that. And, you know, maybe in a less negative way, because it did feel like equals, like that she had a choice in it too, at least afterwards to be like, don't fucking look at me like that again. Or she's like, okay, I'm glad you saw me. And, uh, so that's more of this longing. And unfortunately it's a painful longing, as we all know, when you're really attracted to someone, but something, there's some barrier to it. And uh, maybe a barrier that can't be overcome, or maybe it can be, and maybe you just have to live with this burning. And sometimes it's one of those instantaneous—you see someone on a on a bus or a train, or across a train platform for me, you're like, "Holy crap! Oh, I, oh my!" And then either you can't talk to the person, or you're afraid to, or you're like, "This is just be weird." but I'm stirring, man. Something's stirring some longing. And it might be physical longing, but it might be something more. A lot of times, it is more. Of course, there's always a sexual aspect where animals, were human beings too. So, I don't know, it seemed like their version is Eros, but definitely like a, a passionate longing, a desperate desperation almost. So that was that one, and then we get into the, so maybe that, you you know, you kind of experience throughout life, but it kind of symbolizes uh, the burgeoning sexuality, I'd say, of uh, young people. Then we get into a more mature version that gets in the complexities of adulthood, which is between Jorah and Khaleesi, which still involves longing, but involves a whole bunch of baggage, and the baggage that both people bring. And not negative well, baggage, just realities of situations. Because Jorah betrayed the Khaleesi before he was in love with her, I think, probably. And before he respected her. He's not not just in love with her, but he also respects her and loves her. Uh, on, like I said, many different levels. And also Jorah, I think, for me, he, he represents her. He's experiencing it doesn't represent like all this uh all these different things, like a maternal, like almost like a sadistic, spiritual, like a maternal or paternal, adult, like stuff going on in your subconscious where you have these conflicting desires. You desire that someone's going to accept you and forgive you for your mistakes and say, come to me. You know, I I accept you as you are unconditionally. And also like a secret, darker desire to to experience the opposite, to be like, oh, I really am bad inside. And sadistically, or is that um, masochistically, I'm not sure, to have that desire acted on and say, you are bad, and you've been hiding that lie from me. And you're you were right to be afraid to hide it from me. Now he's wrong. If he, I'm sure, if I mean what she was saying, if you told me right away, I wouldn't be mad. But why'd you let this fester? And then as it festers, it it, it creates a disease in some sense. But uh, you know that that it's like he wanted, on some level, I think, and we all do. Unfortunately, this is a torturous part of the duality of existences to be say no you really are bad and, and you really are should be thrown out like garbage and I, I'm not saying that in any harsh way or to disturb you because I don't think it should like just one of these conflicting things that goes on in us that makes it complicated to live and for Jorah unfortunately it comes true and I think that maybe that's what art does for us to say oh like his worst fear was realized and he made that fear come true by believing in it, almost like if he would have at any point come clean and been like, Khaleesi, you know, I, I, this this is how I met you, and I'm sorry, I, I'm willing to deal with the consequences, but, you know, I don't feel that way anymore. It, it, who knows what would have happened? We don't, but by heart keeping it secret, that damn Tywin was able to exploit it. And then from Khaleesi's... Um, version this maternal uh, I mean it must have been harder for her because I don't know if she was aware that Jorah was in love with her and she seemed to love him in a much different way maybe I don't know but then to have this betrayal like that uh yeah I trusted you and I was alone with you and she entrusted her fears and her growth in some sense like he was a he may have been more of a parental figure, male figure to her, I'm not sure, that she could felt safe with and uh he violated that in a very way that felt violating I don't know how else to say it, and it's like and publicly not only does she have to deal with this private privately, but also publicly, like you know, as a queen and a leader I can't tolerate this either. So, you you know, I have to deal with this oof, on all these different levels. So, that's more of a longing. And that's heartbreak. I mean, jeez. And we've, but this, so this is another kind of love that we all experience throughout our lifetime. And uh, so, it was like a, a good a way to show us like a love that we're kind of experiencing on all these other lower levels of betrayal and wanting to be betrayed and why we lie and what we fear. And almost like we fear the pain of love. I mean, it's like maybe Jorah's riding out of there. It's like, see, Jorah? He's like talking to himself. Like, Jorah, you big idiot. I told you, you should have told her. You just told her sooner. Look at the mess you got, you know? And then Khaleesi, she might be, you know, hurt too. Like, I can't believe I, trusted, I ever trusted anyone. And Jorah's just like uh, the rest of these scumbags that I've had to, you know, mess up. And he's just darn, he's just another usurper. So, yeah, I mean, it's mean, sorry to get get you down, but well, it's not really. It's a I mean, in some sense, watching this stuff and experiencing pain, other people's pain, and processing it, and even experiencing the pain and heartache yourself, it is a form to bring it back around to the hand washing, to abolition, which I'm pronouncing incorrectly, probably, but a ritual, purification it is purifying, um, to process this, these feelings externally and to see the suffering and the heartache and the longing and identify with it. Say, oh, that reminds me of this, or it viscerally affects me the way this affected me. And that's, I mean, again, I'm a fanboy. I'm going to say it. That's why I love Game of Thrones. All right, so let's finish up with, uh, I'm going to get down and, uh, have a little chat with the old gods and the new. Okay, uh, hey, Crone, uh, Miller, Smith, Barky. I want to pray to you guys, but I, and I don't want you guys to take this the wrong way, because you're the you're four of the best. But I need to roll the other gods in here. Not, not I'm not trying to supplicate or. You know, you're like the top four, and the other gods are like the... They're still gods. I can't change that. It's out of my control. And this is going to be another time I'm praying... Just an update before I get into it. The goats, everything's good with the goats. couple... Well, everything's not great with... Okay. Everything's not good with the goats. You know, you're gods, you know. I don't know why they left, okay? I woke up. Oh, oh. I messed up, okay? I'll get the goats back. I'm not sure if they were stolen, so, but I'm pretty sure they just left me when I was asleep, and, um, I don't know how, how, they don't move that fast, and I wasn't asleep for that long, and I did a big circle, so yeah, I don't know, so I'm sorry, but I'm back on the goat herding starting tomorrow, because, uh, I've just been pacing a lot thinking about it and how I messed up. But, you know, I got to sleep. Maybe I shouldn't have slept in the middle. I, I'm i sorry. Okay. That's all I can say. But so I got to pray to you. Uh, so that's a like goat update. So if you guys want to help me out with the goats, but I, that's my job. Okay. So that's on me. But I want to pray to you guys for can this tradition of praying for the other people other than me, you know. I think it's going to pay off for me in the end, and but I want to pray for some people that are going through some hard times together, uh, to you guys, but also to the other gods, just because sometimes the other gods, you know, fit some of these people. So maiden, sweet, sweet maiden, I want to pray to you for Sam and Gilly. That uh, even though Sam was dumb enough to send his girlfriend or the girl he loves to Mole's town and he shouldn't be forgiven for that, maybe, that works out for them. And Maiden, maybe your beauty, your sweet, 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 sweet beauty, Maiden, that I imagine in my mind, because I've never seen you. And I know, you know, you probably have a beautiful neck with nice clavicles that I'd like to put my lips on. Please stir that in Sam and let him try to kiss Gilly's neck, and maybe if Gilly or maybe he should do something else first, like hold her hand, but you know help him out and keep them safe, maiden, because i I don't care you know you know my passion burns deep inside me, maybe, but uh, i more care you know I'm here to take care of the less fortunate than me, so if you could keep an eye on Sam and Gilly for me, it'd be great. And uh, that sweet night, I just want to, you know, kiss it and then see what it smells like after I kiss it. That's a maiden. Thank you, Crone. If you could talk to the Lords of the Vale and the others, and everyone around the globe of Westeros and Earth too, give them some, um, you know, thing of like you don't just have give, Crone. You, you can you spread some agape. Or, you know, some more balance that I could pay that's like, okay, we don't just have to love people that are the same as us. We can love all uh, and embrace all, even though they're different than us. Please do that crone. Especially the Lords of the Vale. Especially that Lord Rice, he's a jerk. Even though he doesn't act and that, that old lady, I don't know who her, what her name was. She was a little bit better than him. I think there might have been a third lady that didn't say much too. But they're a little bit haughty. And if you could, you know, slow their roll, that'd be that'd be terrific. Hey, Maiden, I'm back. Sorry, I, I, I didn't mean to. Uh, uh, you probably heard me talk about Melisandre. She's pretty foxy, but I want Grey Worm and Melisandre to be together. And, you know, I know that means I'm willing I'm to sacrifice, but it also means, you know, my passion works its way around. But I want them, you know, if you can make sure he has his pillar and, um, We're not. I think it'll work out fine, even if without it. But you know, I just want those two to be able to uh, make out or more and be together, even though it's against all odds. And there's probably some dark side of the unsullied. Like if you touch them with their shirt off, you know they probably go into battle mode. So you could help Grey Worm out, because he seems like a real nice cat, and Melisandre seems cool too. Um, and, uh, again, I'm attracted to her, so, you know, you know, I can't help it, Maiden, but, you know, I, you know, I'm not asking you to reveal yourself to me, but probably go a long way. So, yeah, for Grey Worm and sandra Hey, uh, this is a, this is a shout out to the Drowned God. I know I normally don't talk to you because, uh, you know, I don't, if I was, uh, you know, just, you're a little harsh for me. And I know you lose your temper. I lose my temper, too, so let's not go down that road. I don't want to be doing battle with you. But who I do want to do battle with is uh, a couple Boltons and also a uh, Clegane. And I know you're into reeving and pirating and stuff, and believe me, I'm going to reeve me some Boltons and some uh, Papa Clegane. I'm a, I'll start with the Clegane Papa. And I'll try not to disrupt the whole time space continuum. But drown God if you could uh imbue with me a power and, and you know, mess up Cat Stevens fantasy fiction time machine so he doesn't try to outdo me. But I'm gonna go back, I'm gonna mess up that Clegane. game. And at some point I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna make sure some debts are paid. So drown God, I'm gonna do that. Because I know you're into that. I don't even know what reaving is. I haven't looked it up yet. But there's going to be some reaving for sure. Or something like I think reaving means. That it doesn't mean. So drown God if you could be. And I don't think, you know, just because you don't have a skeleton. that's That doesn't bother me. But the Bolton, it bothers the Bolton's. So, and what may is dead may never die. Right? Right. Um. But. Clegane and the Bolton's, like, I'll throw him in the sea, all right? How about that? Got it. Um, Jester, I know I've never prayed to you, and this is the first time, and you might not even be aware you're a god, but I got to pray to you, Jester, Lord, Jester, uh, unappreciated of all the gods and laughed at up until today when you rightly ascend to your place in the heavens of the old gods and the new as it should be, and as it always will be. Uh, Jester, I want you. I gotta pray for the Arya and the Hound. I know you're the only guy worthy of appreciating them, so keep them safe in the ridiculous situation that they're in, and please don't make it more ridiculous. We'll do because that's entertaining, and you know, Jester, I'll be in touch 'cause uh, you probably were. I bet you had your little trickster hand in getting those goats away, and that's fine. My situation is. Unacceptably uh, humorous and comical With chasing goats around that I can't find And trying to look at poop And is this goat poop or is this some other animal poop? what? Why, how why, How am I going to be a goat herder If I don't even know what goat poop looks like And I was like, oh wait, no, this is a beetle And it's stinging me, it's not even poop Sure, that was you, Jester, that's cool Okay, so just keep an eye on that And I'll be praying to you again soon because just like the Smith and the Miller and the Crone, you're right up there with me, and Barky, too. And this is no offense to you other gods, but all right, Chester, so congratulations on becoming a god that's finally appreciated, which you probably find hilarious. Amen. Uh, Smith, no, no, Warrior, I know you like uh, brothers in arms, so I just wanted you to keep an eye on Jamie and Tyrion for me. Uh, that's all I got to say to you. But, you know, we have respect for each other, so do that, please, warrior. Father and Crone, I want a double prayer for Tyrion and Olson, And Tyrion's quest for understanding, I know the two of you maybe combined can help him out with that. And better understanding the world and the way it works and why. That's my prayer to you. A uh, warrior. I was gonna pray for Oberon and vengeance, and maybe you could get some post haste vengeance going there. Uh, and Smith, if you could help me out when when I work with the Drowned God, um, maybe you know messing up, you know, I, we could like uh, show the mountain is dad or something to mess up with him even more, cause he's a punk. So that's my prayer for Oberon. Or Oberon, I don't know if you become a god, but you probably, maybe you are the jester. Oh, that makes sense. It makes the jester so cool, too. Oberon, jester, god. Thank you. That's totally, yeah. Thanks, Oberon. Uh, Smith, I'm a, uh, since you're a god that no one prays to but me, do want you keep an eye on Jorah. He's going to be alone, like someone in a, oh, wait, Miller. Uh, sorry. Sorry, Miller. Even I forgot about you. I meant—I meant to pray to you, and I meant to pray to the Smith instead. Smith, you could help him out too, but Miller, you're the god no one prays to but me. And even I forget you sometimes. Forgive me. But keep an eye on Sir Jora. He's probably not sir anymore. Maybe he wasn't even. But if you can keep keep an eye on him, he's gonna be alone. He's probably gonna go through some trials. He'll need some bread. But also, need a god that can appreciate like being alone in a mill and not having any uh worshipers except for myself. But now you're not alone either, Miller, because with the passing of Oberon into becoming the god of jester god, you got a, a friend up there, just like it's like your Woody and Buzz of the gods. So, yeah, when I get um Barky, the uh Lord of the Rings stuff, I'll get you guys some Toy Story DVDs. You guys probably don't need DVDs. We'll work on that, but you guys will like Buzz and Woody, and you're going to like each other. So keep an eye on Jorah. He's already, like, seems like he gets burned, sunburned. And just don't let him, you know, get involved with somebody. Man, I don't He's he's kind of screwed, so... Maybe I should... Yeah, maybe I should pray to the drowned God for him, too. So if he falls in the sea... What is dead may never die. Um, I'm trying to thank all gods. uh, I think if I prayed to everybody, crone. Mother, if you can keep it on Khaleesi, she's probably hurting inside a little bit. And she, you know, she's trying to be a mother uh, to a lot of people. And she's learning to love. And I know mother, that's what you symbolize. And, you know, if you could work with the Khaleesi on that, that'd be great. Um, back, I'm going to back up to my prayers, uh, Barky, you know, trees are really knowledgeable because you see a lot of stuff too. So if you could be with Tyrion too, and you're solid and Tyrion needs someone solid, uh, right now, cause he's kind of in a pickle. Uh, also Jon Snow, I know I was, I was supposed to pray to couples only. He, he, he could, he could use you too, Barky. Um, and if you could get any trees that fight be handy for Jon Snow. Um, that'd be great. And uh that's it, Gods. Crone, if you could maybe keep an eye on Reek. He kinda creeps me out now. I never actually I didn't really like him when he was a human being either, but uh I feel bad for him. So that's it, Gods. Uh again I'm working on the go thing. Again most of you gods can leave. This is for Crone. Smith Miller Barkey and Jester. Uh, I'm working on things. Welcome to the group, Oberon. I'm gonna call you Jester though, since that's your new title. And uh, yeah, I mean, and maybe because 'cause you're fresh. You could, you, you know, guys, you could fill him in on all, everything we got going. And you know, Oberon, Jester, yeah, I don't. No, I guess I can't trust you. You're kind of like a genie. But I was gonna tell you about the boots I was looking for. And oh, oh man. Luckily you're a jester. I think stay away from the maiden. I'd appreciate that. Uh, mother's all yours, crone. It's yours too. And maybe I'll just make some. You could. You know. You, why don't you go into Earth? I don't know how old you are. If you can still get women pregnant, I'd appreciate if you don't. But you know, you could have earthly lovers like the Greek and Roman gods do. But just stay away from the maiden. Thanks. That's it. Uh, Good night, gods, and uh, I appreciate that you take care of these couples that I pray for this evening. Amen.